You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Don Guerra. And I'm Cade Young. This is the WFHB Local News for Monday, June 13th, 2022. Later in the program, we have an excerpt from Partisan Gardens, our latest public affairs program devoted to food justice. More in today's feature report. Also coming up in the next half hour, the Bloomington City Council heard from the Historic Preservation Commission about the historical designation of a property located on Kirkwood. That's coming up next in your daily headlines. At the Bloomington City Council Committee of the Whole meeting on June 8th, Historic Preservation Program Manager Gloria Colum, Branya, presented on the Bloomington National Savings and Loan Association building, located at 200 East Kirkwood Avenue. Colum Branya asked the council to designate the building as a historic district to protect it from demolition. So this property is also an exemplary example of the international architectural style, which is a style that um, tends to be a little bit more vulnerable to redevelopment because it was so minimalist with its clean lines during its time. It also not only is it international style, which is part of the modernist style. So you usually associate that type of building with high rises with skyscrapers in big cities. And this is a very unique sample of a smaller scale structure of this style that served a very localized community using local materials, mainly the limestone, the Bloomington, Indiana limestone. So when I started doing research for this building, this this came as a demolition delay. I was able to find some images of when it opened up, and both the interior and the exterior. We're only working with the exterior as part of this, um, as part of the purview of the HPC. Uh, I found this aerial photograph that shows that its location, its placing, and everything is intact. And the only big change has been that the drive-through used to have a roof, and it doesn't anymore. That's basically the only change that we've really found over time. The property representative from Studio 3 Design, Tim Cover, shared that the owner of the property would prefer to tear down the building and start from scratch. Cover said that the building across the street, which is now a CVS, has more of the historic qualifications than the bank. As far as uh, desire uh, from the owner, uh, they would like, they bought the property in the opportunity zone with the intent to increased density on the property, which included taking down the current structure and building new. Uh, So we have uh, gone through the process with HPC and and voiced that concern uh, or desire. Uh, Obviously there's a, a, a different direction that's being presented here as far as to save the structure. 
but in terms of uh, structural soundness, the building is structurally sound. Um, and again, it's just, unfortunately, it's a, a small site with the uh, building that's on there and uh, the two-story structure itself, uh, as far as redevelopment, isn't necessarily conducive to getting the kind of density out of it that, that you would need for, honestly, the, the price and value of the land. Um, in terms of historic, uh, we have a, a gentleman uh, as part of our group did a little research as well. And if I may, I'll just read what he wrote, uh, if that's okay. Okay, so uh, directly across the street from uh, this property, 200 East Kirkwood, is the SNL building uh, that Gloria just mentioned uh, that better ex exemplifies the attributes cited for this designation. Same ar architectural style of the era, built in uh, 1954, using the same materials mentioned, but also featuring a carved limestone eagle insignia of the Federal Savings and Loan Agency on the facade next to the front entrance. Colin Branya said that the Historic Preservation Commission has been talking with the owner and is aware that they would prefer to demolish the building and start from scratch. However, after researching the building, she wanted to give the council all of the information available to make a decision on the matter. The first one is that, yes, we understand that this came to us as a demolition delay and that, and that we would try to make an effort to preserve it if possible. The owner originally was very, did not like the idea. Um, so far, the conversations with Tim Cover, who has spoken now, had been more, from what I understood, conciliatory to the possibility of it being designated and to the possibility of having to work with the HPC in order to densify and redevelop the site, including the historic structure. So the idea was never to forbid the growth of the redevelopment of the site, but rather to incorporate the historic structure into the new design. Um, so I believe ideally it would be simpler for the owner if he could, uh, they could start with a clean slate. However, there have been conversations between myself and uh, the petitioner regarding the possibility of it being named and then how to go forward, you know, depending if it, if the building is demolished or depending if it's elevated to a historic district and what the solutions would be. So we have been working on different possibilities. The last thing that I did want to address is that yes, the building in front of it is an exemplary example of this international style as well. Basically there are two. The one that came before us for demolition delay was 200 East Kirkwood and that the at first, when I first saw it, I was on the fence about whether to nominate it or not, whether this was an effort worth fighting for. But then when I was doing research, I realized that it was a very intact version of a 1961 building. And that type of building usually disappears pretty quickly. So I am here making that effort. And in the end, the decision will be yours. But I want to make sure that it is as informed a decision as possible before we it's, it's a weighty decision to decide whether this 
piece of 1960s history will remain or whether something completely new will be allowed there. But I want to make sure that that decision is made as informed as possible. Councilmember Jim Sims asked about the criteria the Preservation Committee has for the designation and asked for information on whether or not there were racial restrictions at the property. Um, part of uh, your criteria, what I started, um, historic says exemplifies the cultural, political, economic, social, or historic heritage of the community. Um, and I think part of your research would show, in fact, along with many of the deeds uh, of all the, the houses that were being sold at the time, had some restrictions, um, racial restrictions, and that sort of thing. I'd be interested in knowing this particular bank that we're asking to designate tonight or next week. If there's anything in your research that can show us that they did anything to mitigate um, that negative part of history, um, that, since it's kind of listed on all that it's going to do under historic, well, that's historic as well. So I'd just like to hear more about that, unless you have some comments tonight. Colin Bryan has said that she would research it before the next meeting. The council will discuss the designation of 200 East Kirkwood Avenue at their next meeting on June 15th. On June 8th, at the Monroe County Commissioner's meeting, Health Department Director Penny Caudill asked the commissioners to approve the continuation of funding of the Baby and Me program until September. Caudill explained that the funding was initially provided by the National Association of County and City Health Officials and was then taken over by the Indiana Department of Health. According to Caudill, the Indiana Department of Health is looking into other programs and will not be funding the Baby and Me program moving forward. The Indiana Department of Health has since stopped the Baby and Me program, and they are looking at some other initiatives to help women who are pregnant uh, stop smoking or using tobacco in some form. Um, so we wanted to continue this program at least in order to get the people who were in it through it, right? And so we have those NATO funds available, and this is to renew that program for a period of time through September so that we can use those funds and see those clients through. The commissioners unanimously voted to approve the funding of the program until September. County Attorney Jeff Cockerell asked the commissioners to approve an emergency declaration to address the cleanup of a property that he said is a public health issue. According to Cockerell, people experiencing homelessness set up an encampment that is, quote, unsafe due to hazardous materials being left on site. At last week's meeting, the commissioners approved of the cleanup of the camp, but more action is needed to get the work done. Um, this is the property that we had a uh, homeless encampment on that we're going through the process of uh, cleaning up the property. Uh, we approved that you, you, the commissioners approved an agreement last week for up to five days for, for a contractor to come in and remove the trash and, and hazardous waste. I think as, the further we get into this, the more we realize that this is a bigger issue than what we began with. And in order to resolve those issues, and the, the issues are making sure the property is no longer used for camping, making sure that the refuse and waste and hazardous materials no longer accumulate on those, this property um, require, and, and that it maintains the drainage function, which is what it was 
is why we have it and what it was designed for, that we need to do some additional cleanup work and we need to do it in a pretty quick manner in order to avoid the, the, the issues that we've had out there in the past. Facilities manager Greg Crone shared pictures of the site and explained to the commissioners why he believes the cleanup is necessary. According to Crone, they found thousands of needles and want to ensure they get any needles that might have been missed in the undergrowth. Um, I've been on site at that location since last Thursday throughout the weekend and then uh, again yesterday monitoring the progress of the cleanup. Uh, I'd like to start by saying uh, if it weren't for the diligence and the professionalism of the Bio One Company, the Monroe County Highway Department, the Monroe County Sheriff's Department, and the Monroe County Emergency Management Department, we wouldn't have it to the level that it is. By my estimation, as you can see by the pictures we're including here, these just give you a small scope idea of some of the things that we were encountering. Uh, at last count, the number of needles that had been picked up numbered in the thousands. They have buckets full of them. We also have hazardous materials, chemicals that are used in the manufacture of methamphetamine that's on the location that we still have to dispose of. Um, these pictures don't do it justice. This shows you what was readily available, what was stomped down uh, in the heavy paths that people were able to access. This area was originally cleared. I remember it being cleared back in the 80s for that retention to be put in. And since then, it's been allowed to grow up. So this is all growth scrub, undergrowth, multifloral rows. So there was a lot of areas that we were not able to access trying to get all this cleaned out. Um, so there still remains uh, items that we haven't found yet and items that we can see that we need to remove brush to get to. Uh, I have noticed on every occasion that I've been out there, uh, there's a population attempting to move back in on the property. We had fresh encampments yesterday morning when we came in that we had to take back down. And I did a uh, just a drive pass through this morning and could see fresh activity again today. Crone asked the commissioners to approve of the reseeding of the property to make the area into a green space so that people will be visible to the deputies in the future and to dissuade anyone from sleeping there. So the other issue is this property for our, for our deputies is only really accessible from one side. Uh, that is the, uh, be the north end of the property that runs along the at-home store, their alley behind that. In order to clear that out for the deputies to have a line of sight, we need to remove that all that brush and that undergrowth. I'm requesting that we leave all trees over 12 inches, the good healthy trees that are in there, remove everything else and then seed that so it's a green space. Um, this will allow the deputies to have a line of sight to anywhere on that property. Uh, it will also deter the want for building camps because of visibility. Uh, they don't desire to be visible, so this will help with that issue. Um, like I said, we still have items in there for meth manufacture, but I want to get back in there and make sure that we've gotten all that out. I need to bring in the state police to pull out what we've already found. Uh, the longer we wait on this, the bigger problem we're going to have as far as repopulation of the area. The commissioners approved the emergency declaration unanimously. 
The next Monroe County Commissioner's meeting will be held on June 15th. In today's feature report, we have an excerpt from Partisan Gardens, our latest public affairs program devoted to food justice. This comes from a program titled The Neighborhood Planting Project. The producers of Partisan Gardens spoke with Nick and May of Recalcitrant Seeds, who launched the Neighborhood Planting Project late last year. To listen to the full program, visit wfhb.org following this broadcast. We now turn to that excerpt from Partisan Gardens. Hi, so my name is Nick. And my name is May. We're part of a project called Recalcitrant Seeds, and we launched the Chicago Neighborhood Planting Project in late 2021. We feel it's empowering for people to be able to meet their own needs and grow their own food. Climate change is really threatening our food security and supply chains, as we've seen in the past couple of years from both the pandemic and the war in Ukraine can endanger food supply chains or even potentially cause them to collapse. And what we need both for climate resilience and general resilience is locally adapted food production. Um, on top of that, modern agricultural systems are really destroying our soil health. They release a ton of emissions from transporting food from place to place and people and the earth would both be better off if we could grow more of our food ourselves in our own communities. Yeah, so this was the first year of the Chicago Neighborhood Planting Project. Um, we had never done anything like this and did not have really an existing infrastructure or group or space to build off of. We really didn't do a lot of like hype or advertising. We had a couple flyers we put on social media like Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. In 2021, we had put out an interest survey to some neighborhood Facebook groups that some people responded to. And based off of those responses, we created a mailing list, which we had followed up with about our event. Um, but really, it was pretty low effort for just putting these things out on social media. They got reshared by a bunch of larger accounts um, around like food sovereignty and gardening, which I think is really where most of the attendance came from, was from it being shared. And the event was hosted at a mutual aid space in the Humboldt Park neighborhood of Chicago called People Over Profit. And we made that connection with them as we were looking for an event space. Um, they have a free store where they do distribution of like food, clothes, hygiene items, pet foods, things like that. Um, yeah, um, we had the event on a Friday night, uh, 5 p.m. and it was on Earth Day. Yeah, so in terms of the logistics of how we put the event on, we got about five of our friends to help us out. Uh, it actually was storming at the time that the event began, so we had to hold the distro indoors. 
Uh, we had asked everyone through the flyer to wear masks just in case we had to do the distribution indoors. We kept all the trees in tubs of moist growing medium, and we color-coded all of them with tape so that we didn't have to label them by hand whenever people pick them up. We had a station for picking up the trees, a station for wrapping them with newsprint, and then a station for dipping them into water and wrapping them in plastic bags to keep them moist before they were planted. And we had very large, bright, legible signs instructing everyone how to go through that process. And people handled it really well. Um, people were helping each other wrap trees and helping each other get the trees into bags. You know, we had volunteers there helping out, but we really could have done it with fewer. And it was a really smooth process once people could see for themselves how easy it was to pick up their trees and get them prepped. And we had a tree care zine that we had put together, which, you know, talked a little bit about the project and then talked about each of the trees we had and like care for them in general planting instructions and had that at the first station. So people were able to like pick up that literature, read the instructions to go through the stations and have that entry point into picking out their trees. Yeah. And as for why we decided to do this project, one of the main reasons is that Chicago's tree canopy has been shrinking year over year. And it was already inequitably distributed to begin with. The wealthier, whiter areas of the city have more trees, and the blacker, poorer areas have fewer. And more and more of our canopy over time has been made up of invasive trees such as European buckthorn, uh, which doesn't provide much value for local wildlife or for people. And we really want to see a return of native trees and plants and native wildlife that that supports. And the neighborhood where we hosted the event, Humboldt Park, is on the west side, which has some of the sparsest tree canopy in the city. We really want nature to exist in our neighborhoods, and we want ourselves and our communities to have access to locally grown native foods. I recently read an article about indigenous food forests in the Pacific Northwest of the United States, um, and I found myself really enamored with the idea of being able to walk through the place where you live and be surrounded by abundant food that you can pick off a tree at any time of year. And I think we deserve to have natural spaces and resources and food like that in our lives. And another reason that we decided to do this project is because we wanted to make connections with people in Chicago who we didn't already know who were doing the same work or had you know, similar or overlapping interests. Chicago is a really big city. It's really spread out. It's very neighborhood based and there's a lot of people doing a lot of cool things, but there um, aren't always ways to meet. Um, so we hoped that our event could be a convergence point for both us and attendees to make connections with each other. And we, in the event, actually did that. So we connected with other like food autonomy and community gardening projects like directly as a result of this event. These were people, I'm not sure how else we ever would have met. We did not have mutual friends in common. And 
planting trees is a way for people to, you know, learn new skills and to realize that they have the power to improve their lives and their communities in a really immediate and tangible way, especially because many Chicagoans are neglected by city services or, you know, private investments. In Chicago, on paper, there are policies and resources for people to request that the city plant a tree in front of their property. But in practice, that's something that doesn't happen efficiently or at all, um, or the process by which it's done is opaque and inaccessible to many Chicagoans. Um, So this event was hopefully, and it seemed in actuality for some of the people who attended, like some people from Humboldt Park, from Garfield Park, to come get a tree and put it in the ground in front of their home the next day, rather than waiting for the city to plant a tree, maybe later this summer, maybe next year, maybe never. Support for WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Noel Herhusky Schneider in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Mia Beach and Hugh Farrell. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Cade Young for WFHB on Don Guerra. And I'm Cade Young. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at wfhb.org. The WFHB Local News is also available as a podcast. Just search our call letters WFHB wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe to never miss another local news program. Stay tuned for With Good Reason, coming up next on WFHB. Listening to the WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at WFHB.org. You can become a WFHB Local News volunteer by attending new volunteer orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB Local News Archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB Local News. We are local, longer 